Welcome, everyone, to the Daredevil Podcast by Fantastic Geek. We are the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me is a guy so method to his watching of the series that he's been taking classes at Bunjikan Goju Dojo in New York City, the school of traditional ninja and samurai martial arts. It's Pete. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. Is there a point to all your words? Daredevil episode 107, Stick, is brought to you by Vanilla Ice Cream Cones. Made from the finest sugar grains, vanilla bean, milk from three different dairies in two different states, a batch of chemicals straight off the periodic table, dirt from the hand off the guy's hand that served it to you, including a paper wrapper perfect for the father figure who will soon reject you. Wow. Bravo, Pete. Order in the court. One more outburst and I'll hold you in contempt. Let's enter the evidence into the record and give the devil his due. Our tease begins with a door slamming. A man uh, runs around stairs. We see he has a mustache. He's got a gun. He's waiting as... uh, An elevator goes between floors 31 and 30. Rather tense scene. He shoots, yells, reloads, and suddenly another man is speaking in Japanese. Where is it? He asks him as he places a sword to the mustachioed man's throat. He doesn't know where is the black sky. Uh, There's some kicking. The hand with the gun in it is suddenly... On the ground, having been severed from the rest of our mustachioed man. And the voice tells him, you have three limbs left and other appendages no man wants to lose. Where is Black Sky? Tells him it's gone. They put it on a ship. Where's the ship headed? New York, of course. And then the sword is to the back of the neck. The man Wielding it wants the mustachioed man to swear to it, which he does upon his family. They're better off without you, he tells him. Suddenly there is blood spatter everywhere, and we see that a blind Scott Glenn gets into the elevator. This is perhaps the greatest teaser act that the series has offered up thus far. Uh, What's this perhaps nonsense? Well, I, 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 I guess I was just hedging the bet. I mean, from the from that descending shot of him going down the different floors, which, by the way, it's probably the same floor and the same camera move, just repeated with different door numbers in the background, which which must have just been a bizarre, you know, thing to you know, and action, and he runs down and cut. Let's change the door numbers. All right, go up to the top and action, run down again. Are you um, implying, Matt, the the production could not find a building with uh, more than three floors? I was just looking at it from a logical point of view that it's probably easier to set up the camera going down, I don't know, six feet than it is to have it go down 18 feet in a in a stairwell, uh, you know, interior stairwell of a building. But more importantly is uh, just the, the viciousness with which the uh, – as of – yet unnamed Scott Glenn character uh, goes after the Asian man. I, I did wonder when uh, when the 
mustachioed gentleman gets his hand chopped off. Does that make the man with the sword his father? There was no uh, reveal at that <laughs> at that moment. Uh, and also, Pete, with uh, with so much sword play in the uh, in the teaser act of this episode, maybe wonder if we were going to have lots of s words. You know, sword s word in this episode because I know you love to keep track of those s words. What do you think? I'm a doddering pencil pusher here who, uh, you know, just adds things up. Of course, I kept count. Excellent. So with that title card, Pete, and then we are in the thick of the action. Act one and the rest of the episode proper begins with a tabloid newspaper headline, The Devil of Hell's Kitchen, with the picture of our masked man from the previous episode condemned from the security footage. Uh, Foggy, of course, uh, says, devil, my shapely Irish behind, uh, <laughs> says the guy is a coward and, uh, what he wouldn't give to rip that corny mask off. Uh, Matt is in the room. So of course he is, uh, privy to all of this. Uh, Karen wants to know then what would Foggy even do? And he tells her that he would punch him in the face with his fisticuffs <laughs> but uh karen says she's not exactly sure how that would go because he seems pretty fisticuffy and she has seen him up close um and foggy wants to know that there's not a hint of admiration there for this terrorist he calls the masked man um McCarran talks about how this is all speculation. Nobody knows. And Foggy tells her that uh, terrorists have causes. They claim responsibility. Al-Qaeda wanted the world to know what kind of jerks they were. Uh, but this guy, not a peep at all. He's, he's all terror without the ist. Uh, what do you call that? A nut job. It's, it is a rather traditional scene, this one, hearkening back to, you know, you know, gee whiz, Clark, can't you be more like Superman? You know, it, it, so there's a bit of that, but I don't think that it, it detracts in any way. Um, it's kind of fun, the conceit of it, that, you know, Foggy in front of his best friend is so condemning of this mysterious devil of hell's kitchen. Um, also, as you mentioned, Pete, just that great line there, the terrorist without the ist, almost, uh, you know, reducing the notion of Daredevil to somebody who is... Um, you know, who doesn't even have an ideology with which we can disagree. Um, and, of course, that is serving the story purpose that um, the public at large does not see this person as a hero. In fact, Fisk's attempts in the last episode to paint Daredevil as as a villain are working, at least with uh, kind of, you know, middle-of-the-road, even-minded, uh, educated people such as Foggy. Lastly, Pete, I'll just mention that the uh, the camera work in this scene is particularly nice. Uh, as Karen is starting to leave, the camera is handheld, and um, Foggy and Matt are closer to it, uh, and Karen is kind of farther away from it. But the the the, the whole the whole result is it's kind of a rather intimate feel to the scene amongst these uh, these three thus far platonically intimate people. Definitely, and as we notice the uh, camera work. Uh, Matt is brought into this. Karen asks him what he thinks about all this. And of course, he's got a rip on my Mets that Foggy will be pitching for them by midseason. <clears throat> this, of course, was filmed uh, in the off season 
and Matt Murdock is not aware of the major league leading 14 and four as of today, 2015 New York Mets. But we'll, we'll uh, you know, he's blind. He can't see what's front of him, and he's not like the blind prophet Tiresias. He can't predict the future. Uh, but nevertheless, um, the rip on the bullpen, he talks about how, uh, you know, well, this guy doesn't tick you off here. Uh, Foggy wants to know and uh, what happened to Hell's Kitchen, what happened to Elena, everything there that Matt should be as mad as Foggy is with this masked man um, that Matt tells him he shouldn't be tried in the press, uh, that they're lawyers, everything going along with that. And uh, Karen asks if uh, he was caught, would Nelson and Murdoch offer to defend him? And Foggy, of course, rejects it outright. And Matt comes back to the idea that this is his right um, and that he should receive the same opportunities as everybody else. Uh, after Karen has left, uh, Foggy wonders to Matt if Karen has a secret, kind of you know showing that Foggy has a bit of a sense of her uh, secret goings-on with uh, Ben Ulrich and all that. Um, but what I loved about that, that pondering from Foggy is that it reiterates his own innocence. Foggy has no secrets. And he really is, uh, I think without any question, the most pure character that we have through these uh, seven episodes. Perhaps that makes him proxy of the audience. Uh, I think that might be a good, uh, a good perspective from which to look at it. But uh, really a scene that serves Foggy well. It does. And as um, Karen leaves and Foggy wonders here, you know, uh, you're bringing us down, uh, Murdoch, you know, the, the high note, the softball, the bat, everything there um, that, you know, when are they getting their company uh, team together? Uh, and Karen says, well, hey, we only have three employees here. Don't get a team together so quick. Um, you know, at least they Matt tells uh, them at least two aren't blind. And uh, Foggy tells them that they are naysayers that, uh, you know, let's go take some batting practice down at the Chelsea Piers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we see. Uh, Chekhov's um, mace keychain there, Matt, as I called it. Um, Karen grabs her keys and she's got the little mace uh, thing on it, which is pointed out a little later by Foggy. Uh, but she's going to see them tomorrow. And um, admittedly here that the work in progress, everything that's going on, um, Matt wonders if they ever worry that um, Karen's not telling them something. Indeed. And Pete, I know longtime listeners of our podcasts know the Chekhov's blank reference. Um, can you just quickly summarize, though, for new viewers, when you say Chekhov's, Chekhov's uh, keychain mace, what, what, is this like a Star Trek thing? Is this like, no, it we is go not. faster, Captain? <laughs> Antonin Chekhov, uh, the writer, famous for having 
coined the phrase used primarily with a gun. If you see a gun in the first act, it has to go off by the third act. It is a rule. And we see this mace here. There's no waste to the mace. We will see this uh, at some point in the episode. And this is probably one of the handiest slash uh, non-spoilery, spoilerist things to keep in mind when you're watching uh, any dramatic presentation, particularly you know a TV show that to communicate to the audience that she has the mace is going to have to show a close-up. And if you're if you're in on the Chekhov's gun rule, you say, "Oh well, I bet they're going to do something with the mace or something with the, you know, the this or the that." And um, and uh, congrats, we've now deconstructed all television for you, and we're going to make uh, surprises a lot less interesting. P.S. <laughs> Bruce Willis never touches anybody because he's a ghost. Yes, and uh, Matt points out to Foggy that everybody has secrets here. Um, I think that's what the kids call hashtag ironic. <laughs> And uh, Foggy wants to know, well, you know, he he doesn't have secrets. He, he'd like some, you know, uh, like the kind that Matt enjoys with Hottie McBurner phone. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and he wants to know all about what's going on there, the, the gritty details, since he doesn't have any of his own. Um, he certainly does a nice job of kind of playing the like sad sack. Foggy, not not the actor. Like Foggy will play yeah. his own sad sack role of like, I wish I had a girl. Hey, you, I'm sad. Let's go out on a date that's not really a date and go drink the eel wine or whatever. Not a metaphor. But um, that Matt turns into the sad sack here. He's going to order in. He's going to get a jump on this tenement case that uh, – they had gotten to two previous episodes before with um, Mrs. Cardenas. And then we get a rather heartfelt, you know, hey, Matt, from from Foggy, you know, it's her loss that it didn't work out with Hottie McBurner phone. You know, those those Irish tech heiresses, they're they're tough to, you know, to lock down <laughs> that they are. And then it's that we transition with him reading the Braille, um, Leland Alsey of the <clears throat> financial um, uh, firm of Silver and Brent. And we transition to see uh, Leland, played by Bob Gunton, in the garage there explaining to a Japanese man that the funds had been reallocated as requested, that all arrangements have been made per your agreement with the guy we're not supposed to blah, blah, blah. There's just this wonderful sarcasm to him and obvious sarcasm. This isn't, you know, breaking news, of course, but I like that Bob Gunton so well known for uh, straight laced evil characters that, that here he is um, still evil, but he's just, he's like the numbers guy. It's the, sure. It's evil numbers coming in. It's stolen numbers. It's stolen bank accounts. and that the other, but you know, he's just like one plus one equals two and 1 million plus 1 million equals 2 million. We have to have a shroud of secrecy with no name. And it's to, to him. There's a slate does not compute there. And it's just a wonderful addition to the character. It is. The Japanese man wants to know so business may continue. And Leland tells him in the best possible way, uninterrupted. 
Um, so what are you going to do when it arrives? Leland asks. And uh, there's a look that would freeze water from the Japanese man. And Leland asks him, what, you think I'm this dodgering pencil pusher that I alluded to earlier here with the fact that I count the S word? Uh, in all these episodes that he moves enormous amounts of money yet has no clue what it's connected to. He tells him that the money is like the numbers are like tea leaves that nobody reads them like he can. You're laying out major reserves to clear docks to make sure police don't come within 10 blocks or more to bribe the controllers to guarantee straight greens how much do you know how much it all costs? And uh, he tells him that he does. And the Japanese man tells him, asks him, is there a point to all your words? Um, and he, he says, well, look, you know, what happened to the Russians? We need to be careful, all of us. Uh, I look out for you. You look out for me. That's all he's saying. And the Japanese man tells him each man must stand for himself or fall with the unworthy rather loaded line here and Leland wonders aloud what the hell does that even mean and the Japanese man leaves at which point um, Leland gives him a little uh, prick <laughs> this a scene by the way that is lit so very very darkly um, it, it, it of course is belying the darkness of this operation and and how they're using light makes these recognizable actors barely visible. It's almost to the point of distraction, but it doesn't cross that line. And I just like that it's so stylish that there's nobody there saying, but wait, the famous Bob Gunton must be lit. But wait, Peter Shinkoda must be lit more. It's just kind of, no, these are the characters who, who in complete reality would probably be meeting in near darkness, but that's not going to play, you know, play on film at all. But um, here it's just such wonderful use of shadow just to really say, if nothing else, these are shadowy individuals. Right. And as the car is unlocked here, we see the reflection of Leland in the window and then the masked man jumps out. Um, he mistakes him for just a random uh, mugger, you know, tells him, what do you want? My wallet. And the masked man goes right to what he's looking for. Um you know what I want to tell me about the man you work for. And, you know, Leland's going to come with silver and Brent here. And, uh, then he's slapped to the ground and the mass man tells him, you work for Wilson Fisk. Can you move his money around? Which means you have records. He needs proof. And it's then that we hear and see a cane tapping, which briefly distracts the masked man Leland tases him and uh, gets in the car and escapes. The tapping gets closer and uh, the man says to our masked man lying on the ground, are you just going to lie there all night? There's there's a bit a bit of sympathy, I think, that the audience is meant to feel for old Leland as he's uh, knocked around by uh, by the masked man. Um, I like that they, they kind of were able to evoke that emotion in us. Um, Leland, obviously not 
not innocent by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly has not uh, directly done some of the bad things that we've seen the other characters do. Uh, so I kind of like that dichotomy there. And uh, also that, uh, yeah, sure enough, he has that taser. I guess he wasn't kidding when he said it a couple episodes ago in another uh, darkly lit garage for a clandestine meeting. So we flash back here. There are overlapping voices and sounds. We're suddenly in a bedroom with a crucifix. And Matt is writhing on that bed as a child. There is a nun with the blind man we had seen in the show's teaser act walking down a long hallway. And she's telling him he is getting worse when we first took him in Matthew's problems seemed less severe. Now he's in so much pain. The doctors, the clergy, no one has any idea of what's wrong. And she tells this unnamed individual at this point that we heard about your work with special children and thought you could help. And he is quick to point out not for free. Um, but the nun tells him that the father left a sizable inheritance and he asks about the mother and um, we get some hesitation on behalf of the nun. She says, well, that's another story, but we know she's not dead. And uh, once they arrive at the room, the uh, blind man tells the nun to make the checkout to cash that he'll take it from there. He goes in, he closes the door as Matt covers his ears panting and uh, tells the little boy they think you're getting worse, but you're not, are you, kid? And he flips him his keys, which Matt grabs out of thin air. This portion of the story and this uh, this beginning of Matt's uh, transition from you know orphan when la- when last we uh, saw him to uh, you know kind of on his way to to learning all these skills and whatnot it's it's the first of a number of scenes in this episode which handle this issue very deftly um, contrasted again by the uh, by the Ben Affleck film where it's kind of like. And young Matt Murdock hung out by himself on a roof for like till he ninja power and then adult. Um, I don't know, being spoiler free, I don't know if we get more of uh, of these Matt flashbacks in future episodes. Uh, I can I, tell you, Matt, if you'd like. Uh, I will say no thanks, but I would bet that we don't. Um, and even if we do, this is enough uh, enough of an explanation at least in terms of the particulars of, you know, what happened to him after his father died and now he's going to be with this guy and, you know, and, and all of that. It's enough to kind of uh, address it up front where, where the, movie, the movie, again, was just like bloppity, bloppity, and then powers. But the blind man having seen Matt grab the keys knows he's getting stronger. So let's get started. Uh, They wind up in a park where there are people doing Tai Chi, a decided Asian flair throughout this episode. And uh, little Matt wants to know, what kind of training is this? Do you like ice cream? He's asked. Yeah, of course. Then shut up and eat it. (laughs) (laughs) I'll ask the questions. The first thing you got to understand is nobody's going to feel sorry for you and nobody ever will. Um, 
because when it comes to being born lucky, you won the friggin' lottery. And Matt, I would argue we have not been treated to a character as interesting or as fun as uh, this yet unnamed character at this point in the episode in the series. Certainly no character that has been so uh, direct regarding the the uh, disability that Matt has and in terms of treating it as a reality, not kind of an ongoing negative. It's just a new a new reality. and and that too is refreshing. Uh, obviously, you need in the the goings on of adult Matt Murdock's life, you need him with the stick and you need him with the you know acting as blind as one would be without the powers. but, this is kind of getting to the nugget of who he actually is now as a boy um, in his in his blind yet enhanced state. And it's refreshing honesty. And when he's told he won the lottery, Matt naturally asks the question. I did. And the cane comes to his throat. And uh, the other man asks him, you know, what did I say about the questions here? that he was told to shut up, of course. Um, so he inquires, you know, what age were you when you were blinded? He was nine. Nine whole years of of looking at movies, at blue skies, up girly skirts <laughs> that he never had, um, that this man was blinded from birth. And, uh, you know, you don't hear him whining about that, do you? So you're nine years old, you're walking along, minding your own business, and whammo, you get hit by a truck, killed dead on the spot. Little boy tells him he wasn't killed. Oh, you lived? Praise God, it's a miracle. So you survive the truck, and you get this chemical stuff, our first of uh, a lot of S words. We set a new record in this episode, Matt. (laughs) This chemical stuff in his eyes. What next? And the little boy tells him that he begins to hear things. What kind of things? Well, everything. Coughs and fights and cats meowing. Sometimes blocks away. That he can sense things. He can know where they are and when they move. But he can't see. Um, So the blind man tells him, well, you know what they call that. Gifts. The special kind. The kind very few have or deserve. And the little boy confesses he never thought about it that way. And the blind man tells him, well, that's because you're stupid. (laughs) Again, the candor here just shown to him. uh, Look, I don't know if this is appropriate for actually dealing with somebody who is recently disabled and dealing with the transition that 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 they must deal with and then and the reality that is going to be omnipresent for the rest of their lives but in this story it makes sense because darn it he's got superpowers and he might be willing to trade those uh to have normal sight again certainly as a nine-year-old i would imagine he would want to but you know there really is this you know hey stupid wake up and realize the flip side to the negative that there's a ton of positive here and and it's an incredibly unique and wonderful gift and and it's so so refreshing right and when the little boy tells him he's not stupid he's smart you know the blind man tells him because you taught yourself to run your little fingers over bumps and read braille uh, you know, smart don't come out of books, kids. Smart is making the right decisions at the right time. 
like now. What's it going to be, Maddie? You're going to spend your life crying and rocking yourself to sleep at night, or are you going to dig deep and find what it takes to reshuffle these cards life dealt you? It's your call. Ever so slight shades, perhaps unintentionally, I don't know, of the the Frank Miller, I think it's Batman and Robin All-Stars, I think is the name of the title, and it's kind of an out-of-continuity telling of those two characters where Batman basically kidnaps Robin, makes him eat bats in the Batcave until Robin accepts you know accepts his new reality and there's the line where the crying crying robin says who are you and i think that the response for batman is i'm the gd batman um a little, again more more tough love you know I, I don't know how much of uh this unnamed character with the stick in his hand uh is uh influenced by the frank miller years on daredevil certainly the uh batman and robin all-stars a frank miller joint um but nonetheless it's uh lots of lots of tough loving here from uh de facto dad right and as this rather you know informed conversation is happening the little boy has the folded wrapper from the ice cream cone. And uh, he tells this man that no one's bought him ice cream since his dad died. And it's here that the blind man wants him to employ his senses. He asks him, what's it taste like? And we can see that it's vanilla. Um, And, the blind man points out, well, everybody can taste vanilla. Pay a little bit more attention. Use those gifts. You know what you got? And he takes a little taste here and explains the litany of ingredients, the sugar grains, the vanilla beans, the milk from three different dairies in two states, the chemicals straight off the periodic table, the dirt off the guy's hand that served it to you. He spent his morning gardening. Uh, there's a whole world around you, Maddie. And it's friggin' huge. All you need are the guts to let it in. You want to try. So he asks him, you know, that dog, what's his story? Little boy tells him he's hungry. His stomach's growling. He's dying to eat the hot dogs. The guy's carrying just up wind. Good. How about the girl? Uh, the little boy notes that her skin is hot. Her heart is beating fast. Is she sick, Matt? No, it's the girl in love. Oh, worse. Worse. She's in love. Okay. Um, the blind man points out. And what about the old man? And, you know, Matt thinks about it for a second and comes with the answer. He's dying. And the blind man says, and there's nothing you can do about it, that it's a big world and not all of it is flowers and sunshine. And the only way that guys like uh, them can survive is to grab it by the throat and never let it go. And it's with that that Matt puts the ice cream cone wrapper in his left pocket of his jeans here and asks, if he asks a question, will he hit him? (laughs) (laughs) And the blind man tells him, well, that depends on the question. He wants to know how did he find him? How did he know? And the blind man tells him that the old biddy at the orphanage thinks it's her idea, but it wasn't, was it? And uh, he said, well, maybe it's one of my gifts or I just got lucky. And he says, that's not an answer. But the blind man tells him, you catch on quick. And the little boy wants to know, are you going to help me? 
And he says, no, I'm going to train you how to control your gift, how to use it, and how to fight. And Maddie tells him that his dad didn't want him to fight, but his dad ain't here. And you'll need all the skills for the war. What war, you ask? Well, we'll get to that part when you're ready. But he doesn't know his name, Matt. What does he call him? Within the scene, he calls him nothing. And before right. we leave that scene, and I just want to point out that the the moment where Matt is reading the dog, the girl in love, the dying man, it's such a great non-effects moment. It's all done in the camera through That's... focus pulling and camera placement. Once again, there's just this stunning, simple, and most of all for we, the audience, accessible way to show we in the sighted world what Matt sees. None of the you know, barely can be seen effects from the movie. It's just a complete departure here, uh, in part because, you know, we have eyes, so we just need kind of a visual metaphor for what Matt is reading. Um, but to answer your question, Pete, uh, uh, Matt's question is not answered in that scene. We instead cut back to the present where the masked man says stick. Yes. And uh, with that, just this wonderful little uh, little flashback has has brought us enough information to now, you know, bring the, the modern day character to the forefront. Right. And Stick is asking, are you going to lie there all night or are you going to get off your behind? OK, I leave for five minutes and you turn the place into some kind of show that uh, we've used this word 20 times now throughout uh six and a half episodes indeed we have and the the presentation here of the modern stick with classy shades stylish hair he's clean shaven it actually had me rewinding or or i guess nobody really rewinds tape anymore but you know going back to the previous scene just to see how scott glenn who they did not you, you know pull back his age considerably for for these scenes 15 or 20 years ago uh, on the park bench, but just the way that they've done his hair, his glasses, uh, gotten rid of his stubble. It's just amazing how they can age him forward and backwards when at the end of the day, it's the same guy with the same wrinkles, you know, and, and he really does look fantastic in, uh, in uh, this, you know, moment where he's revealing himself to the masked man. And, um, the masked man tells him, you've been gone 20 years. Uh, what are you doing back in my city? And uh, Stick tells him, asks him, your city? Hell's Kitchen hates your guts. They have you pegged as a cop killer and some kind of mad bomber. Um, and the masked man tells him he's taking care of it. Uh, but Stick says, an old guy just lit you up. You ain't taking care of stuff. 21 <laughs> um but uh matt wants to know why you're there and stick tells him to save you and everyone in the kitchen from a horrible death more or less no big deal pete the notion that there is this you know this storm coming badness ahead uh that stick knows about once again, in a really interesting narrative choice by the series, once again, Matt Murdock has absolutely no idea what is going on beyond the fact that there are some guys doing some stuff together that's bad for the neighborhood and crime and stuff. 
you know, the fact that, that, you know, that, that black sky is ahead and that whole mystery that we'll get into as the episode unfolds, um, is, is on everybody's radar in the, the Fisk world. Um, but Matt Murdock has absolutely no idea what's going on beyond, all right, some Russians are dead and maybe there's some heroin going on. Um, it, it's it's just such an interesting choice to have him at the center of this drama, but not really understanding the players through what is going to be the midpoint of the episode in, I don't know, about uh, maybe four or five scenes from now. We're at the midpoint of the entire first season. Well, you know who has a little bit of an idea what's going on is Karen and Ben. And as they meet down by the river there in a car, she points out that the paper trail on Union Allied is a bust, that whoever is pulling the strings busted up one big corporation into a bunch of little ones. And Ben is quick to acknowledge that's an old game that you uh, spread the records far and wide to discourage investigations. And Karen uh, wants to know, you know, it's or wants to know. She says that this is like trying to straighten out a bowl of spaghetti. And Ben tells her she could always let it go, but she's not going to let that happen. And uh, that he already told her uh, what this was that uh, she needs to stop complaining. This is the job. It's researching and gathering facts. It's long, it's boring, it's complicated, and half the time you still come up empty um, needing to get the facts here. And Karen, you know, despite the fact that she thinks uh, Ben is a uh, ray of sunshine here, um, he's just given her the lay of the land that for every expose he's ever had published, he had a dozen that didn't amount to anything. Pete, this scene here uh, is saved by the editor, I would, I would argue. It essentially is just a talky, serviceable, rather bland scene uh, where not a lot goes on other than to bring Ben up to speed and to kind of you know, be dismissive of what's gone on so far in terms of you know, corporate malfeasance. Ooh, they dissolve the assets and put them into different companies, you know. The difference in this scene, though, is that once, I think perhaps twice, there's a quick exterior shot of the car suggesting the point of view of someone watching them. It yes. added a fantastic tension to the scene. And I just kept saying, when will something happen? When will something happen? And the fact that nothing happened, I still give credit to the credit to the, the show for it because it just added this this spice to it. And look, there are scenes where you need to have people brought up to speed or you need to over explain things to the audience you know take out a map and say i will go up fifth and you go up fourth and we will converge at the this look that that's the way it is sometimes and, and this is a scene that needed to happen it just wasn't very fun but the whole time it was like the sword of damocles above my head saying when's it gonna happen when's it gonna happen and it didn't and i don't even i don't know if maybe we're gonna find out later someone was watching them etc etc but it just worked it just worked to really drive this scene which was literally in park (laughs) and when uh she points out that all right i know i'm the new girl on the block you know i don't know what i'm doing i get it um and we've gotten that car 
uh, perspective on at least two occasions throughout the scene with the idea that they are being observed, that, uh, you know, Ben tells her he's found bits and pieces, that the Yakuza, you know, the triads may be involved even, and, uh, you know, that drugs, um, then the bombings that took out the Russians, everything else. And Karen asks, you know, you think this is connected to Union Allied? And Ben points out that what he's been coming back to, it doesn't matter what he thinks. It only matters what he can prove. But with Karen saying that the cops had been shot, you think it's really the guy in the mask. And Ben reminds us as the audience that he was standing right next to one of them, Detective Blake, when it happened. Um, They didn't like each other much. And uh, Karen says here that, uh, yeah, I met him when they brought me in the precinct. I see why you didn't get along. Um, Ben tells her that he did what he could. And if he comes out of the coma, so we know he's still alive here, uh, that maybe he will thank him and tell him uh, what really happened out there. But till then, that man in the mask pops up. Karen, do me a favor. Run the other way. Ben also says there are no heroes and there are no villains. Now, obviously, at the end of the day, at the end of the season, I think that we will disagree. But it's a great reminder for the flavor of the series thus far that we have tremendously flawed people on both sides of the hero and villain divide. And, you know, there's also an argument to be made that if Daredevil fails and 10 years from now, uh, you know, the island of Manhattan is this, you know, palatial uh you know example of what a city can be and it's because of all the the um cancer being excised by fisk you know do the ends justify the means now again in a hero villain world we say no go back to the early 90s where you know where uh, giuliani had the uh had the reputation of being il duce in certain uh, minority uh, segments of the new york city population because he was so heavy-handed um you know, is that is that a reputation he still has today? No, it's the guy who helped transform Manhattan and, you know, so on and so forth. So a nice reminder there from Ben that in the real world anyway, in the takeaway outside of this fictional narrative, sometimes there really are no heroes and there are no villains. And he wants Karen to keep in mind here that, you know, they don't know much about this mass man, that how do you know he wasn't there to hurt somebody else with these different agendas, everything like that, that is at play. And, uh, Karen says that, uh, you know, one, one of those could have been to kill me. Um, but Ben lets her know that it wasn't. And if you're not careful, he might want a second crack at it. But she says that the only way he'll, she'll ever feel safe again is if the people that they are talking about are put away and Ben says well then we better get back to the union allied thing and uh, you know if it's something that he can take to his editor possibly um, which he thinks will bag him potentially a Pulitzer Prize but uh, that it's a long shot And Karen says that she was a mean three-point shooter in high school and uh, that she likes the long shots. (laughs) 
some hope there for our heroes. And uh, with that, we cut to Matt's apartment. And Pete Stick comments that it is an expensive what? 22 asshole. Um, <laughs> but when he takes the glasses off there, um, you know, and Matt points out what he pays in rent, that it's expensive S23. Um, and he notes that he's had a woman there. Well, that's none of your business. Is she coming back? And Matt points out what he's already earlier in the episode to Foggy never, uh, although I wouldn't buy that. Um, but uh, the uh, stick tells him good and um, – Matt tells him, you've got a warp perspective on the whole good, bad thing. You know that. But Stick is quick to let him know women are a distraction, just like furniture and apartments um, with your silk sheets. Um, and uh, never really followed up, but Matt tells him that cotton feels like sandpaper on his skin. And Stick tells him that you're better off sleeping on real sandpaper than surrounding yourself with this bull S24. I don't know that it needed to be followed up. I think it was just a reminder that it's not his um, hearing acting as sight that that makes him super powered. Or there's been a couple of references to his ability to smell you know, that it really is the other four senses down to the sense of touch, which I know we've seen, don't get me wrong, but I, I thought it was just, it was it was an opportunity to say, well, if Stick is sensing what's in the apartment, what is there for this particular guy and his wants and his needs? Of course, it's going to be satin sheets um, because of his his sensitivity to, to, you know, the world around him. It felt like a loaded line. I, I certainly got the overcompensation of the senses, but the silk sheets, you know, you'd be so sensitive that they would feel sharp. I mean, certainly heightens it. Um, well, I think, I think too, for most of us in the non four senses of superpowers world, um, satin sheets are suggestive of a slight kind of affectation, perhaps a, a little bit of a ladies man aspect. And I think stick is playing that up here to sit and say, Oh, your lap of luxury. And Oh, you're, you know, your den to bring women back to. And, you know, Matt's just saying, no man, I need it. Um, probably the truth is all three. Matt prefers it. Plus it helps. Uh, let's just say, woo the, woo the satin off the ladies. <laughs> And when Matt tells him, you know, this is my life, I've made something out of it without you, and that really ticks you off, uh, that's what it is. And Stick tells him, uh, no, Maddie, I'm proud of you. I really am. The things you've done, what you've made of yourself, uh, but surrounding you with soft stuff isn't life. It's death. Someday those silk sheets are going to crawl up behind you and wrap themselves around you and choke you to death. You're a warrior. That he that he certainly is. And um, not an unfair point on Stick's part either. Okay. Not just a warrior, mad Heir to the Spartans. Baddest of the bad. And... Um, that uh, they knew what they had to do and they did it. They cut it loose, all of it. They cut themselves free from women, comfort, and the fancy jobs. And uh, Matt, of course, tells him 
that his job isn't that fancy and we know that it's not but you know do you have friends do you have people you care about and matt admits there are two stick tells him that he needs to cut them loose for their sake break their hearts even if you have to just do it quick um and matt tells him he's not going to do that and stick tells him that they are going to suffer and you will die relationships are a luxury that men like you and i can't afford so matt asks is that why you left to protect me um and stick tells him he had his reasons but matt was a kid and you know he tells him that uh well you still are you know boo hoo stick left me uh, I think I'll bury my sorrows between the legs of a supermodel. <laughs> and uh, this is not know, broadcast TV, no, uh, uh, no. Marvel Cinematic but, Universe, is it? But but there's that you know father figure thing that we've danced around all episode. He tells him not to push it, stick, or what? You, you know, I'm I'm trying to teach you how to stay alive. And uh, he says, you're worse than your old man. Born to lose, battling Jack. At least your daddy got paid when he hit the floor. And it's with that that uh, Matt grabs a stick. Stick gets his right arm in a hold. And a wonderful transition here back to the earlier time period. It definitely is, and it's it's an especially deft episode at, at handling these flashbacks at uh, at appropriate times. Young Matt uh, being held in the same position, and um, you know it's it, it it's this whole idea that Matt must find his rage um, and, and be able to apply it and funnel it and focus it in such a way that he can uh, he can battle back, uh, which. Uh, as a child, he's not able to do, despite the fact that he shows some some sweet moves. But uh, still, we have Stick uh, Stick out on top uh, with uh, his battle with the boy. And he tells him, you know, you're hurting me. And Stick wants him to make him stop. Um, and he can't get out, so quit. And he tells him that Murdoch's never quit. So Stick pushes him forward, then beat me. I've got all day. And uh, Matt tells him, you're just a bully. And Stick acknowledges that the world's full of him. What are you going to do about it? So Matty swings, Stick moves, feel the breeze. <laughs> and there are other kicks and, and dodges and, and finally some blocks. And Stick tells him, you've got heart, kid, uh, but heart's not enough. You've got to control that rage. And Matty tells him that you said anger is a weapon. And he says that uh, anger's the spark it's, uh, that's good. Rage is a wildfire. It's out of control, therefore useless, just like you laying there. And Maddie fights again. There's some more blocks. And Stick hits him in the face with the cane. And he falls onto his back. Hey, sometimes you gotta, you got to learn the hard way. Sometimes it's the carrot and sometimes it's the, well, you know. Yes. I thought Murdoch's never quit, Stick tells him. And Maddie comes at this point with all of the guilt. You know, it's his fault. He did it. He killed his father that, uh, you know, they paid him to lose against Crail. And I wanted him to win. So he did it because of me. I just wanted him to come home. 
but he didn't and he never will stick tells him and uh you know they all pay for their choices maybe your old man fought for you maybe he did it for himself the only thing he knows for sure is that he's gone now but i'm here now get up time to stop taking a beating and start giving one hoorah and with that we cut to the present day uh, Matt finally has found a way to get uh, to get out of that move that Stick has put him in, and um, I like that. With that, Pete, the fight is kind of over. You know, it's kind of still Stick trying to be that paternal guide, that that coach, um, and uh, they uh, decide to crack open a few beers, just not those German ones, which. I don't know if there was some larger message there or some larger joke. I just liked that, I don't know, Stick is particular about the kind of post-fight beers you can have. Right. And as they're talking about the war here, um, you know, Stick flips a beer cap off of the window, the toaster, and into the trash can. The never-ending war. With who? Well, he never got around to explaining that part. But now it's the Japanese mostly. And uh, Matt tells him he does not want him tearing up Hell's Kitchen going after the Yakuza, but it's much bigger than that. He doesn't know what's going on in his own backyard. The guy he was yapping with, with the old man, that slapped him around is pretty high up and goes by a lots of lots of names, but is now using Nobu at this time. Um, so Nobu, uh, you know, he wants him so bad. Why'd you let him get away? Um, that he didn't want him. He wants what he's shipping here at the docks tonight that uh, Owsley was talking about and what are they bringing in drugs or something but we get the revelation here that it's a weapon called Black Sky the bringer of shadows and what kind of weapon is that Matt the kind you don't want in your world and uh, no E on the end of that sky for the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. fans there <laughs> Um, but stick noting that what is needed here is a committed soldier and he's unsure that Matt can, can do the killing, which is necessary, uh, in this coming war. And, uh, nonetheless though, uh, Matt has to, um, Matt has to be that committed soldier. There's the line there. Someday it will come down to you or the other guy. Uh, I suspect that that line from stick there is probably heavy on the foreshadowing saying, at the end of this season, we mean. Um, even then, with Baldy, uh, you never know, Pete. You never know. Um, but even with that, Matt reiterates that he's not a stone cold killer, and um, you know, nonetheless, Stick needs help to come and stop Black Sky. Right. You know, to drop this bleeding heart stuff to uh, not make it half measures anymore. To move through with conviction. But, you know, the protection of the city, if he's still afraid to cross that line, his, you know, vow not to kill, that it's going to be an issue. But Stick wants him to ride with him tonight, that they will uh, destroy Black Sky together, keep it off the streets. And he promises that, uh, you know, when uh, he meets Fisk, that he will taste uh, the fear 
that uh, he'll know he kicked this guy where it counts. And uh, despite all of this, there is uh, just Matt making stick promise that no one will get killed. And what I am all but sure was meant to be a little a little nod to that uh, to that beloved small movie called the terminator 2 judgment day uh stick raises his hand and says i swear i will not kill anyone (laughs) um there's a world weariness to it his sarcasm is obvious though only after the fact you know when he's ready to kill people later on in the episode we move to mrs cardenas apartment here and a conversation with karen where much of it is in Spanish and, and really worked. And kudos to Demaran Wall for being able to do this scene primarily in another language. But, you know, between giving her groceries and, and wanting to give her some money here, uh, Elena won't take the money. But um, that it's about the subject of the handsome lawyer and of course, Karen thinks that Elena means Matt, but it's Senor Foggy. He's so handsome. And he he in love. Yes, he, he love you. Another reference here that we aren't sure whether Karen is sure who Karen is uh, most drawn to, although it's becoming rather clear that uh, Karen might have some like in her heart for both fellas. Right. And, you know, though Mr. Tully, this fat S26, is lying on a beach someplace, can't get at him. They're looking for records, receipts for the repairs that were done in Elena's apartment here. She doesn't have any of that. She had just called Tully and he sent the men, but she can report that there was a bald one and then one with a big tattoo on his arm. It was a pattern that went up to his neck. Thank God he's no son of mine. But um, Elena wants uh, her to be able to realize that Foggy cares for her and um, that it doesn't need to be like this senorita page <laughs> with that karen leaves the apartment and gee whiz pete she's being followed by a mysterious guy a bald guy wait a minute yeah. but mrs c just mentioned a bald guy um and with that she uh, kind of starts to get slapped around a bit right there's a bearded guy that i call in my notes here beardo and uh beardo tells her that uh you know maybe she can uh, give up the mace and he can spray it all over her face. He's a poet. He's a, he's a poet of the streets. Yes. Um, but it's then that um, she is able to wiggle free and to use Chekhov's mace there. And then Chekhov's softball and bat show up. Continuing the, uh, the minor theme in this episode of the game of bass, uh, Faki is there using that uh, that uh, game of bat and ball to take them down. Um, however, Pete, however, in a in a week where in other uh, in other venues, namely Twitter, we've been critical about how uh, how on other non Marvel TV shows women as characters are treated so poorly, so weak, so ineffective. Here, although Karen was not able to magically subdue 
to two stone cold thugs by herself quickly what does she say to foggy pete she reminds foggy that she could have handled it herself because darn it this is a marvel show and she might have been temporarily inconvenienced by these guys but she could have nonetheless kicked their butts even though i think we're all glad foggy showed up that's not to say she couldn't have done it herself well let's discuss that away from the maniacs um, and then Foggy takes a bat to one of them before we transition to a number of Asian men down at the docks and a big blue shipping container that's being uh, moved around with a crane. Nobu gets out of the car and our masked man and stick are up on a building perched over this. They can read uh, – Matt can read a dozen heartbeats, slow and steady, not even a flutter. Uh, but there's one more stronger difference, and we wonder whether this is Nobu or something else given the context of this episode. But they are all armed with MP7s, with suppressors. Somebody wants this quiet, and Stick tells him, well, we will be quieter. And he picks up something that he begins to uh, assemble. Do you remember how to use these, he asks Matt who tells him we won't need them. And he says, yeah, you will to thin out the herd. I'll take care of black sky. And he tells him to just do his job. And then he promises he'll do his, he grabs a bag and begins to extend his cane here. Um, as Matt slowly moves to take out the other guards, stick continues to assemble. What we see is actually a bow and arrow uh, guards go down and then the door opens to the container. It is a dirty little boy with a black collar around his neck. And we get the effect on the heartbeat here. Um, the guys undo the chain. They help him up and stick shoots the arrow at the child and matt realizes this and does a flip to deflect it all hell breaks loose the asians open fire and um matt uses the stick weapons there the boy is hurried away into the cars that get him out of there and then they're gone but not before we flash back this scene is one that really takes use of not letting us see everything, uh, whether it's the baddies when they're first being taken out one by one uh, before the shipping container is opened. There's a lot of moving moving guys out of frame with a quick blur of the masked man. Um, so, it, you know, again, kind of an economical presentation, but one where we are kind of a member sort of of nobu's crew where it's like oh i thought i saw something hey where'd uh where'd what's his name go um similarly as the the kid nay kids are taken out of the shipping container the exact number is unclear the the particulars beyond they're kind of grimy and in chains are unclear um it's 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 a great way to kind of keep we the audience on our toes in our flashback maddie is dodging these sticks here they're thrown. He grabs them. Um, and we get the decidedly Asian flair of sticks training here. You know, what rules the body? My mind. What's your strongest weapon? My body. The connection here, the mind controls the body. The body controls our enemies. Our enemies control Jack 
S28. Um, but it's the deep down feelings there uh, that come up. You have to control them inside. And how do you do that? You meditate. You mean that thing where you pretend not to sleep? <laughs> <laughs> and there's that there's that addition there by Stick that proper meditation can heal wounds faster, which to me was a really telling line. And I, yes. I don't know that they've done anything. Uh, well, I know that they haven't done anything with it directly uh, thus far, but it kind of was almost you know, a Chekhov's proper meditation tip, if you will, where it's like, ooh, they surely they must do something with that beyond, you know, oh, that's how Matt, you know, feels better so quickly. Um, so I guess let's stick a pin in that one. Yeah, because there's no hyperbaric chamber uh, sensory deprivation uh, tank like uh, the Batfleck Daredevil. But, um, you know, Stick tells him that if you open yourself up to this, you can do all of this. And um, when if he's still alive, as Stick points out that, how do you think I'm still alive, kid? Uh, but he'll learn and uh, they'll get started tomorrow with knives. And it's then that we get all mushy, Matt, like a leftover vanilla ice cream cone. And Maddie has something for him. It's Chekhov's ice cream wrapper turned into a bracelet. And in a rather abrupt gesture, um, you know, though it's explained by Maddie, this was from when we first met, you remember it, and he does, Stick crushes it, tells him his training is over. He can't help him anymore. And he ex maybe he expected too much of him. We flash back to the present and uh, in Matt's apartment there, Stick is sitting on the couch uh, with the sticks at his feet. He grabs them and uh, Matt told him, you promised me you weren't going to kill anyone, which he acknowledges. And he wants to know what was that back there. And he tells him the mission um, that you uh, you can't come to be. He can't have him killing children. And, uh, you know, that thing in the container, Stick tells him, was not a child. But Matt tells him he could hear his heartbeat. It was light. It was fast. He hadn't even hit puberty. But this emotion here, uh, despite the final S word of the episode that Matt utters, um, that if he would have focused his crybaby feelings that um, – Matt should have noticed what that kid really was. And Stick tells him he's as blind as he ever was. But uh, Matt throws back in his face, you should have stuck around and um, finished training me yourself. It's, it's a heavy scene and one yes. that is just so uh, pregnant with, with possibility and mystery and speculation, which we'll get to in, in the proper segment. But just kind of revelation after revelation you know it was not a child it was more and we're just saying well what in the world is going on here certainly some of the less realistic aspects of the marvel cinematic universe that we know about already are flowing through our heads but um luckily pete the show doesn't let our heads kind of float away like a balloon too much because stick has one more little tidbit about the uh the kid and his present state 
right when he tells Matt that he needed a soldier, you wanted a father, um, that they had both been disappointed that uh, he's ready to leave here and uh, he's not going to let you kill, let him kill that kid because, well, we find out here, at least he tells him that the kid is already dead. He caught up to him while uh, Matt was still playing around with the guys um, around Nobu that he put an arrow through that thing's heart. And it's then that Matt attacks and uh, Stick throws in his face, you can't even tag an old man, throws him into the coffee table. Um, the, the Sticks uh, come out here. They move up the stairs. There's a chokehold. Uh, he flips him. He finally bloodies Stick and uh, throws him his bag and tells him to get out of my city. It's it's a pretty rough fight, particularly given the age of Stick. You know, you add to it all the furniture being smashed into. Um, thank goodness, by the way, that the apartment has those big windows that allow for illumination. Um, and as the fight kind of reaches its climax here, you have just Stick left to kicking Matt over and over, telling him to get up, um, which is just a brief pause for the fight. Then the fight resumes, and, and it's just... You know, it, it's it's a bare knuckle fight in a show that has one or two uh, an episode. We're, we're still seeing different ways that fights can be presented, and fights can have different emotional resonances with we the audience. And Stick tells Matt that there might be hope for him yet. Puts the glasses on, tells him it's been nice catching up, but you could keep the sticks. You're gonna need them. We move to Ben's office where Karen is now accompanied by Foggy. And Ben is a little perturbed here, wants to know what part of don't tell anybody about this. And didn't she understand? But uh, she lets him know that Foggy is not just anyone. He's a good attorney uh, who kicks some butt. And sooner or later, they're going to need one of those. And he just plain kicks butt. When the need arises, Foggy clarifies. But Karen uh, asserts that he can be trusted, uh, that he's one of the good ones. And Ben says, well, let's show him the board. Karen brings him over and walks us through what we had seen at the beginning of the previous episode, that Ben has everything laid out, all the possible connections, start at the bottom, and uh, moving up to the king of diamonds. And Ben says, this is the man at the top. And Foggy wonders if they have any idea who he is. Karen says that they don't, but they uh, believe he might be the one behind Union Allied, as well as another player that Ben brings in in the field, the man in black. And Foggy wants to know if they think that he is working for the king. Karen says, no, he never would have helped me expose Union Allied if he were. And Ben says that if that's the case, Uh, They're working against one another and just a great piece of production that the Jack of Hearts is placed up there with the black mask on just like uh, our masked man tied in the back. So the question is, which one trumps the other? A nice question to be asking for for their final scene of the episode. Uh, You know, we're now moving towards the second half of the series and uh, the notion that this uh, this man in black has been elevated at least in some circles to the the same height as the mysterious king 
pin of the operation. We cut back to Matt cleaning up his apartment, at which point he finds the ice cream wrapper bracelet. And he sits down to meditate, perhaps. We then see a pot with steam coming from it. And Stick comes into view and tells another figure, it's done. Black Sky is no longer a threat. And the man with a very deep voice says, for now, what about Murdoch? And Stick tells him he's stubborn, he's immature. And we've pulled back at this point to see a rather muscular man with long hair and scars all over his back come into view. He is sitting, uh, I believe the kids say now, uh, crisscross applesauce to that's stick, right yeah to it's far less ethnic um to who are we adam sandler <laughs> to uh stick kneeling before this other figure um who points out that uh murdoch is still a real pain in the behind and uh the unnamed character with his back to the camera wants to know if he will be ready when the doors open and stick says, I have no idea. I love that in those last two scenes there, we go from, Oh, stick is a surrogate dad. After all, he's just a tough one, but he, he loves his surrogate son to the notion that no, he's being, he Matt is being viewed as a pawn, uh, at least in large degree by stick and uh, this mysterious character. Objection, Your Honor. He's badgering the witness. Well, what do you want me to give him a testimonial dinner? Who brought the heat into Hell's Kitchen in this episode? Pete, I think we have to start with Stick. I mean, not for nothing. He's all charismatic and lesson teachy and all of that. Uh, he did, you know, chop a guy's hand off, though, in the first couple minutes after after making the guy feel so, uh, so afeared. That uh, he'd run down all those flights of stairs and whatnot. So, um, Stick definitely uh, operating in the gray. Uh, let's not forget as well, of course, he, uh, if we take him to his word, he he killed a kid that, uh, you know, he, he, he says it was no big deal, but he killed a kid at the end. So, uh, definitely a little bit of a, uh, of a sticky wicket there. Well, I'm not going to say there's not uh, an element of him that forget gray, uh, nay, black, Matt. Um, you know, the, the death at the beginning of the episode, the purported death uh -huh. of the child here. Um, you know, again, we're going on his word. Who's to say? That he did. This is a guy who expressed some some pride in Matt Murdock and what he's you know done with his life in the twenty years since he's trained him. Um, there is the care given the appearance of the ice cream uh, wrapper bracelet there at the very end. So you know while there are villainy elements of him, I'm not completely convinced he's a villain. Well, let's move on to Leland, uh, certainly a uh, not exactly a street level criminal, but certainly not with the great aspirations that it seems the others in his little syndicate share. He's like he's a numbers guy. He's kind of casual about it. I think that's something that we really enjoy about him. And uh, I mean, up to up to no good in this as he's moving around that no good money from no boo. 
he's the key connection for um, Murdoch at this point and being able to put it all together um, that he's only in the one scene, but when he does, you know, Bob Gunton certainly grabs it and runs with it. And he knows much more and reminds us as an audience that, you know, the, the paper trail and everything like this and coming off the previous episode where Vladimir had given up this name and now being able to at least put the face on him and, uh, you know, connect Nobu to him as well. You know, uh, Murdoch is off to the races. You know, this is why the Spectre organization uh, adopted a number system. So you would not even know names. You would say, who, who is your money man? You'd say number 14. Uh, and that, that would be that. You know, it shows the brilliance of that, uh, that organization. I never really watched Remington Steel, so I wouldn't be able to say. <laughs> uh, next on the list, uh, nobody but no boo. Uh, nice to see him getting a little bit more of a central role here, getting a little bit more uh, dialogue, uh, particularly in English, and uh, certainly indications that there's uh, much more story ahead for him. But in this episode, trafficking in the black sky, whatever that is, uh, trafficking in these kids, whatever's up with that. Um, it, it appears not to be positive, Pete. Were we not led to, I mean, we'll talk about this in our, you know, theory segment, uh, in a sidebar next, but were we not led to believe that the child and the black sky were one and the same? I would agree. I, I guess I was just more referring to, gotcha. um, the, the the reputation of what was in there versus what what we saw and uh, yeah I certainly would agree that that was Black Sky whatever whatever the connection is um, is uh, as of yet unknown but just just all those question marks and he's the one uh, he's the one making those questions possible. Well, the only English dialogue we had gotten from him so far was in his last meeting with Wilson Fisk, where he said, remember your promise to me and those I represent. So clearly whatever's going on with the black sky connected to that, all the money he's laying out that Leland is aware of and, and wants to know what this is all for shadowy at best, uh, dubious to be sure. Absolutely. And last on the list, Pete, the mysterious, presumably Asian man at the end, what with scars on his back and such. Matt, do you think we got a look at Iron Fist here? Ooh, that's a really interesting question. I'm going to say no for the following reason. Um, as, as As much as I try to not be... Uh, getting spoiled i think i would have been spoiled over that uh I, i've read a couple of things that that i have also kind of pushed into a dark corner of my mind to forget but <laughs> there's a couple of things i've heard about this uh you know th these remaining episodes there's a couple of things i heard uh about the age of ultron which opened internationally but not in these united states yet so i think if i heard iron fist was there so be it now that said he's also such a low lower profile character that i don't know the people immediately would have been like oh man look look daredevil met spider-man uh, you know like it would have been a little it would have been a little easier to to sneak one past us but i'm gonna say no 
Okay. Well, we'll have to see. I mean, the the scars on the back here, this commanding presence over somebody like Stick, who already has a commanding presence. This is a man to be feared. He seems dangerous. Uh, the booming voice, the persona there. We don't get the face. Um, something's up, and we'll just have to see how it plays out. Or you will. Your Honor, may I approach the bench? May I approach the bench? It's time to step aside and approach the bench to discuss some off-the-record theories. You be the judge. Pete, I think from this episode, the the one and only to, to at least start with, probably to discuss in its entirety, uh, is Black Sky. What's up with those kids in rags and chains uh, providing such interests from the uh, the evil Nobu and uh, being, being presumably dispensed with such uh, efficiency by the concerned and presumably heroic stick? Well, you say kids. We we just have the one um, taken away in this episode, which they claim to have killed. But when uh, Black Sky was explained to uh, Matt Murdock, Bringer of Shadows came along with it. And there was the whole idea of that other heartbeat. Some really, really interesting stuff, which we don't see the payoff in this episode. Um I'm going to say that, uh, yeah, I'm just going to leave it at that. Fair enough. I I thought that there was the at least the possibility. It was not, not presented clearly one way or the other, but I thought that there was the possibility of there being more than one kid in the, uh, in the container. Just the one. Fair enough. We've been using our enhanced senses to monitor the frequencies. Here's what you had to say. Matt, I will begin with a little communique we received via Facebook. And uh, it is from Matt Allen. Matt writes in on the last podcast, and this was a couple episodes ago. He sent this in April 17th. But on a previous podcast, I'll, I'll edit there, uh, you talked about how Daredevil wouldn't be pirated because it all drops at once. And he linked us to an article from Entertainment Weekly that talked about how Daredevil has become the second most pirated show the week after it launched. And um, we had had one other comment floating around where uh, somebody wrote in with that. And here's what I'm going to say, Matt. That's what uh, old Spoiler Pete is going to call the Daredevil effect. Game of Thrones, of course, being the most pirated thing on TV. Not everybody has HBO and doesn't help that, uh, you know, four of the fifth season episodes leaked the night before the fifth season started three weeks ago. And uh, 48 million episodes were stolen last year. But when you make good TV... Game of Thrones, Daredevil, people are going to want it. The caveat I would say is that Daredevil all at once, um, you know, we're still waiting. You're still waiting for those upper, other episodes of Game of Thrones at this point. Certainly an interesting fact, particularly given that they must view this as 
you know, money falling off the table. And if it's a little bit, eh, uh, if it's, if it's 48 million episodes of game of Thrones last year, I mean, that's, that's not insignificant. Uh, when you start to do the math of, you know, four episodes a month and what you pay per month for HBO and all that. Um, the flip side is this, that's up to the bean counters. It certainly does add to the buzz if it's something that's coveted enough to be stolen. So while it's not, you know, not something that is, uh, well, shall we say, right in terms of making sure that the people who made this are getting fairly, uh, you know, fairly paid, or at least the parent organization is getting fairly paid, so on and so forth, but certainly speaks to the interest in this show. And Pete, do you know what else is a major area of interest and would be pirated if it could be? I'm not sure. It is your interactions with people on Twitter. Uh, and <laughs> how can people be in touch with you in that that instant gratification, never too long to read uh, social network? Well, it's free on Twitter. You can find me at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 5,664 followers. Can't be wrong. Pete, is it free or is it priceless? You can find me on Twitter, where I'm looking back lost. But most importantly, you can be in touch with the podcast. We are Fantastic Geek. And you can find us on Twitter, Gmail, and the dot com, where we are Fantastic Geek. That is fantastic with a PH. But Pete, let's not forget that this piracy article was brought to us by the Facebook. And how can people talk to us there? Facebook.com forward slash Fantastic Geek with the PH all one word. Well, with that, I will remind everybody that we will be back this upcoming Friday for episode 108 of Daredevil as we keep on trucking along here. Can't believe, Pete, in about four weeks, we will be done with Daredevil. Worth mentioning as well, uh, to those of you who listen to us on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we uh, dropped a little reflection, not a little, I guess it was about 40 minutes, but we dropped a uh, reflection episode, reflection podcast on the first Avengers film. Next weekend, we will be dropping uh, our podcast on Avengers Age of Ultron as well after after I go see that. Pete has already, uh, you know, he, he took the Concorde to France so that he could see it and then be back in time <laughs> to continue our recording schedule. Um, so tons of podcasting ahead and, uh, before too long, Pete, we're going to be start to, uh, start to talk about our summer plans for the podcasts. Exciting times. And with that, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you, Pete, the final word. <laughs> Boo Stick left me. You better believe I'm back. Back in the New York world.